Hello! Welcome back to the BRN Podcast. I'm Val, and today we have a conversation to share with you between Sherry Hampton, creator of Served Up Sober, and Vimala Sara, the BRN president and author of Eight Step Recovery. In this episode, Sherry speaks about life growing up as a queer teenager, and as an adult recovering from meth and drinking. She shares BIPOC recovery resources and talks about her use of holistic recovery modalities. Sherry will be facilitating the upcoming event with She Recovers, Healing the Effects of Racism for Black Women in Recovery, a critical conversation. This is taking place October 18th. The first half is open to all women and non-binary folks in recovery to take part in this conversation, and the second part is a closed after-party for Black folks only. The first half is on Sunday, October 18th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Central, and 2 p.m. Eastern. It'll be 90 minutes, followed by the closed after-party for Black women only at 1 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Eastern, and it'll be 60 minutes. Find out more information at sherecovers.org, and then under online programs, Critical Conversations. To find out more information on Sherry and her resources, check out sherryhampton.com, S-H-A-R-I-H-A-M-P-T-O-N.com or servedupsober.com. Hope you can make it to this important conversation. Okay, enjoy the podcast. Sherry, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. It's a great delight for me to speak to another sister in the field of recovery, a sister who's out about it and Mm -hmm. in the field of, of recovery. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And the first thing, I want to ask you about your blogs, because that's when you came into my orbit, when Holly from Tempest said, do you know of Sherry who's blogging around recovery? So tell me about these blogs you were doing. You know, it, it started, I actually, when I first recovered, I thought I wanted to open a sober living home. And... Um, that was the dream of mine. I wanted to open a sober living home and I couldn't figure out how I was going to find the clients. I mean, I was naive. (laughs) It's it's not difficult to find clients, but for me, I just was wondering like, where am I going to find the people? How are they going to know about me um, and my story and my mission? And that's kind of how the blog came about. It was almost like an advertising um, scheme of mine. I wanted them to know that I existed and that I was really working towards creating something for the community. I knew right away from the beginning I wanted to create something for us. And so it it, it started like that. And then the more I, I blogged and I also did videos, and, and a lot of people know me from the videos I did on Instagram, I just was trying to reach um, people that were struggling and people that were fearful and people that were unsure about this thing, you know, could they do this thing? And um, it just, just poured out of me really as a, as a way of reaching out to people and, you know, letting them know that it was possible. So. What 
what what is your story? I mean, we we are very familiar with white women's stories, white men's stories, but even mm-hmm. in twenty twenty, we're not so familiar with these stories of black people, people of, of color, their stories of recovery. What is your story? You know, I I mean, I drank and and, and used for. Ooh, over 30 years. So I had a, I had a long relationship with alcohol and drugs. Um, and, you know, I just uncovered the other day that it stemmed from being um, a queer teenager. I just, I just dug into that the other day where I grew up worried that I was the only one, <laughs> you know, I, I was queer in the seventies, born in 1964 so in the 70s, I was really discovering myself and wondering, what about me? Like, what about me? Who's going to love me? Who's going to find me? Am I going to find anyone? And so I was, I was really shy and, and, and very um, just, on one hand, very outspoken and, and you know, out. Um, my mom outed me when I was 14. She let me know, listen, you're, you're a unique wonderful individual, but you're going to be a little different. So I didn't have those worries. I didn't have the worries of coming out to family. I was out at a very early age, but I struggled. And I think I used alcohol. Matter of fact, I know I, I did now. It's coming all flooding back to me that, you know, the only place to find us um, was in the bars. You know, that was the only place that was safe for us to to kind of congregate. And, you know, I was I was sneaking into bars when I was 16 and just trying to find my place so it started there before before we move on I really want to pause you there because it's so important for us to hear that black families have been supportive around their queer children because there is this myth that in the black community is all negative we're not supportive and, I, and it really moves me that in this in the 70s and that mm-hmm. your family, your mother outed you and really supported you. I think that's really important. So if there's any, you know, black big pot listeners, you know, listening, that actually we are supportive in our community. There are places. Yeah. Absolutely. And and it was it was probably the best gift that she could have given me. Um, my family was was extremely supportive. I you know, I can remember my family, um, ending friendships with people that weren't as supportive. And so if anyone said anything negative about me um, and, you know, they didn't quite know what to call me, you know, strangers or not strangers, but friends of family. And I can remember aunts and uncles and just immediately severing ties. So I I came from a very fortunate situation um, where I was supported from the beginning, but inwardly I was fearful I was really, really fearful about what was there for me. Was there something for me? Um, and I didn't think it was possible. I mean, I was the only thing, only thing I knew that maybe gay people were in James Cleveland's choir. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just didn't know. When you went to the bars, were there other people of color there or was you the only one? Not very many. I would be the only one. See, 
I, I would be the only one. And so, I mean, I had a little hope, but, you know, there wasn't, there just, we were just not out. We just were not out. So I was, I was ahead of my time, I think. Well, listen, I'm more ahead of you. I'm two years <laughs> older than you. I, was, uh, <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. It's true. We, we, we weren't so visible, were we? We weren't. Mm-mm. Yeah. And so it's not a wonder that actually you turn to the alcohol and the drugs to, to deal with that inner fear within mm-hmm. you to bit about that. It was, I mean, alcohol became like my best friend, like at such an early age. It was what I turned to. It was um, what I relied on. It was, it became a big part of my life in my 20s. I mean, I was, you know, I dibbled and dabbled in cocaine um, in my 20s also. That's when crack cocaine was just kind of coming around. Um, but alcohol really was, was it for me. It was it. Um, you know, I, I didn't really start doing heavier drugs until I was in my thirties. And so, like I said, I had this small stint with cocaine, you know, right around 21 through maybe 23, but I was scared of cocaine. You know, I was like, this is doing big stuff. And I just, I wasn't quite ready. Um, I knew that I could go really, really down really, really fast. Um, but I started dibbling and dabbling in other stuff in my thirties and um, really got addicted to crystal meth. And crystal meth was a different monster, um, a different beast. Uh, by I mean, I s- celebrated my 40th birthday in a, in a closet, you know, completely methed out. And so, you know, mid-30s to mid-40s was just a different beast in terms of um, what I was using and, and, and how I was using it and just life was really unmanageable for me. Um, the last part of my addiction um, between ages 45 to 50. So I've been sober just five, just under five and a half years. So probably by, I got sober on in 2015. And so that last period was just heavy drinking. I mean, I was just, going from vodka to gin to um, back to vodka, back to gin, you know, whatever. I would switch it up. Then I'd do wine for a while. Um, And, you know, the disease accelerated really fast for me. So that that final couple of years, I was blacking out and uh, having accidents and, you know, all the wonderful things that come with being really in 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 a dark space. Um, and you know, the, the final year, um, I battled because I knew I had to get sober. I had a terminally ill father and I knew that I wouldn't, I couldn't make it to the funeral if I didn't sober up. And so that was pretty much something that was prompting me, but it took a long time. It took, it took the intervention of, um, a friend of the family. He was a psychiatrist, Dr. Uh, William Greer, and he kind of pulled me into his home and, um, detoxed me on a raw diet and introduced me to all of these holistic modalities that I had heard about, but had never tried for myself. I mean, I had never meditated, you know, his wife um, was an experienced theta healer. And so she did theta healing on me. I had never, I mean, I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) 
<laughs> what are you talking about? But, you know, that I had my own chiropractor that, that I worked with, um, my own acupuncturist, and that's how I detoxed and healed. Not the first time I went to his house, but over a period of, of sessions that we would go through. And obviously he would do psychoanalysis on me as well. Um, I was just really, really fortunate. And, you know, that's what prompted me to want to do something because I, I feel like there's such a disparity of equity for African-Americans that had I not had that family connection, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have taken that route. It wouldn't have ever dawned on me that I could heal myself holistically. I would have gone into the rooms of AA and I had tried AA before and it was just really a discouraging experience for me. Um, and, and I, I knew that I needed something more, not necessarily something different because I did use AA in the beginning also, but I needed something in addition. I needed, I needed more. And so, um, having that experience with him exposed me to more. It just gave me a, a wider lens and, um, I was raw, you know, I was raw for like six months. I relapsed at a, at a hamburger joint, but I, for, for six months, I, I, I had a raw diet and my body just healed slowly. I mean, here we are five and a half years later. Well, that's done. a short story. Thank you. Congratulations. Well done. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things that uh, I could ask you. I think the first thing is, is how do we deal with this disparity of equity around African-American people? you know, in the hell realms of addiction? How do we deal with that disparity? You know, I, I think it, it, we're, it, in America, we're dealing with it now. You know, we're looking at the, the structural racism and um, how that plays out along all of our institutions. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's a very organic process in, in a lot of ways. When, when I look at how many people were in the space, the social media space for recovery. There were none of us, you know, and now they, I mean, we are really um, showing up and being seen and, and, and speaking out. Um, but, but I think when you look at how do we, we have to make it affordable. We have to make it affordable. And so far we haven't been able to do that. And so I think there is this huge gap where African-Americans just don't have access to the services that could really, really benefit them and and promote healing, not necessarily just sobriety or recovery, but just healing overall. Um, We just don't have access to it. I don't know if I know the answer. Uh, It's interesting that you say that we don't have access to it because what comes up for me around our African descent communities, whether it's African-American, African-British or African-Canadian, the three (laughs) places Mm -hmm. connected to is that we as People know how to spend money. Oh, we do. On our hair, you know. We spend yes. money on our clothes. We spend money on our cars. We spend money on music. So mm-hmm. how, can we, how can we make these holistic healing things a priority? You know, I was thinking, and just it just came up when you were talking about that. I think that sometimes what what inhibits us is our religion, and that that we sometimes feel like if it's not in the Bible, it's of the devil. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like, there's just, 
we've disconnected from our roots to such a degree that so right. You know, you, you're so right. Uh, my, I, I love him. My nephew, one of my nephews, and he's been sending me this Bible stuff and whatever. And I'm like, hey, do you think I'm going to go to hell or whatever? But believes everything that is in the Bible, and I, and mm-hmm. I get it on one level. I said, I get it because you know, for a young black male, how are young black men going to stay on the straight and narrow? Mm-hmm. They need something to believe in. Something. And and it's this holding on to this this thing of the Bible and believing everything in it through fear, fear mm-hmm. of anything else. That's mm-hmm. very interesting that you've said that. Yeah, We were, uh, my partner and I, um, she has her own um, lifestyle company. It's a candle company and she produces sage also. And we were, you know, promoting, she did a promotion a, a year or so ago. And it was interesting, somehow through the feed, it came across, someone was saying that saging is of the devil. And, it, you know, it was just this this bizarre belief system that even saging with all of its purifying, um, you know, elements, that, that that was somehow evil. And so I think that there's this, there's, we need to demystify what holistic healing is all about for African-Americans. I think that that we just have somehow forgotten that this is part of our heritage. Like it was who we are, were. We, we need to widen the lens because music is part of our healing. Mm-hmm. But it's more than just the music and the good food and looking good, you know, mm-hmm. it, we, I mean, basically, I think there's been this healing on the external, but where do we do that healing on the internal? On the internal, you're right. You're right. And saying that, you are offering something for the community. You, you have a your own recovery program. I mean, I know it's still in its fledgling state, but do you want to mm-hmm. tell me? It's it's exactly everything that um, and thank you for asking. It, it it's exactly everything that I use to recover. And so, um, except for the theta healing, <laughs> we're not doing that. But um, we have we have community acupuncture. Um, we have one of one of two um, black women in San Diego that that are acupuncturists. We have one of them, so she does community acupuncture. We have um, sound bowl healing um, by an African-American gentleman. He comes in. He's also a, a yoga instructor, so he does yoga and sound healing with um, with sound bowls. We have a restorative eating coach. She comes in and she does um, workshops on how to restore yourself with food. Um, her workshops are phenomenal. Um, we also do meditation. And we have um, a self-love coach that comes in and talks about self-empowerment and, and pouring love into yourself. Um, we also have an education, um, in, an exercise life coach slash healer. He's kind of he's kind of all all the things, but he talks about what prevents us from exercising emotionally and mentally. So it's not really an exercise program, 
but looking at, I guess, the programming internally that's preventing us from doing the things we want to do. So that's kind of our our menu of services that we offer. We haven't been able to do it since COVID. COVID has, has shut most of it down. We do a couple of things online. We've, um, we've you know, we do yoga virtually. We've also done a restorative eating class virtually. Um, but we've our our programming was hit. You know, we we can't do anything in person, and and all of our things were pretty much in person. But that's the crux of what we do when we're able to do our thing. And how do African American people? find out about, about the program and your blog? How do they get to find out about that? So um, I'm, I'm everywhere at Served Up Sober. And so they, if they, I guess, kind of by word of mouth, I don't do a lot of advertising. I do some on Facebook. I'm on Instagram all the time. Um, but I think that's a good question. How do they, how do they find me? I'm beginning to show up more in uh, magazines here in San Diego that that promote African American or Black excellence, they can find um, mention of Served Up Sober there. The Temper writes about us. Um, you know, we were just in an article um, by Tawny for um, you know Queer Spaces on um, on on Instagram, and so we 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 haven't done enough i mean the one thing i know i i'm not as a marketer <laughs> because i don't know exactly how to market us but i think they just find us by um by looking for us online it's served up sober it's served up sober everywhere um whether it's on instagram or whether it's on um the web facebook page all things served up sober okay thank you for that so let's go back into our our community it's things like addiction taboo in african american communities african descent communities is it a taboo subject is it a subject that we really can't speak about most definitely we don't talk about it we do not air our dirty laundry i mean i think that that's drilled into us as as toddlers, I mean, definitely by the age of five, what goes on in this house stays in this house. You know what I mean? How many grandparents have said that? How many parents have said that? I think that we, it's very taboo to talk about it, not only addiction, but mental illness also. You know, we don't, we don't talk about that. We don't necessarily um, believe, I think as a community, I think we're getting better, but we're, we're very shy as, as it relates to, to therapy. You know, we're not big on, on getting therapy and support in that way. So I think it is taboo. Um, and I, I, I think that the churches, if I can say this, have done an awful job. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ministers, and it, it's interesting because I was having a conversation with someone a, a few weeks ago about how can we get access to the African-American community, well, you can access them through church because that's where they are. Exactly. But you have to figure out how to partner with the pastors and the ministers of the churches. And the pastors and the ministers are very, they covet their flock. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult to get in and partner with them and say, hey, can we do a conference? Can we do a panel? Can we have an open discussion about addiction and, and how it's really um, ravaging our families and our, our teens, you know, suicide, just all of that. And I think that's the key, but it's also the challenge. 
why why is it why why is it taboo why why have we created this culture of what stays in the house stays here why i think we're fearful of of the judgment i think we we're fearful of there's our there's already things that we have to overcome our blackness um, we're, we're judged and we're discriminated against for that. And, and I think that there's that one more thing of having to attach to us. And now I have an addiction problem or, and now I have a mental illness. I think we're just afraid of the stigma that's attached to it. I think as it relates to the churches, there's, there's so much control there and there's a fear of if you open up, if you open up and say you can, you can heal this way, and or this is beneficial, and it's not attached to falling on your knees and praying. You know, I think that there's a fear of of letting go of that kind of control. Also, as you can tell, I'm I'm not very religious. <laughs> I'm, we won't go to hell. I promise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, just looking at ad- addiction, and, and one of the things that you had clearly said when we began this conversation, that actually this, for you, this drinking was really something about this inner fear that you had within you. And I'm just wondering, what would you say are some of the generic causes of addiction within the Black community what do you think would be some of the causes that that really uh that we need to create adaptations like alcohol or drugs to cope with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think we're hopeless i think that you know and i was thinking about um the environment that i grew up in and i spent a lot of time at my grandmother's and there was alcohol everywhere and it was it was almost part of the the coping of you know coming home you know she was she worked for the county in the you know the county hospital and coming home from having been on her feet ten hours that was her legal medication um that she used and so I think that um we use it to to cope I think that's one of the causes I think we we feel hopeless. We we use it as we use it as medicine, basically. When we're depressed, um, when we're grieving, you know, everybody say, "Child, let me make you a drink. <laughs> let me let me make a cocktail for you." When we're celebrating, um, we we use it, and so I think that that those are the causes. Is that it's it's so ingrained in everything that we do. Go, they 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 gave us, <laughs> you know. They gave us the Bible and took our land. And with the Bible, they gave us alcohol. We're still, right, years later, still using this 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 alcohol. Just um, is it is it possible to separate our black identities from our addictions? And the reason why I ask that is, you know, something like the rooms of twelve steps. It's very very clear. You're only here to talk about the alcohol. You're only here to talk about the drugs or or the food. And for for black people, that can be quite difficult. So is it possible to separate the two or do we need to be including those when we're talking about our recovery? 
I don't think it's possible to separate the two. I think that they go hand in hand. I think our our experience as Black folk um, is woven into our experience with addiction. I don't I don't think that you can separate them. I think the struggles that we that we the struggle that we're in. I mean, we're in that struggle every day. Every day we are black. <laughs> you know, every day we show up as as black people, and 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 we are discriminated because of that. We struggle because of that. We we don't have access to the certain things because of that. And so, when we are trying to heal our addictions, I think that our blackness is a big part of that. I just don't I don't see how we can separate the two. I think that we have to look at all of those things that we have endured because of our blackness. Um I I think that I think they have to go together. I think they do go together. And what's the cost? What do you think is the cost for us if we have to separate the two out? Mm. We go into the rooms of recovery and we can only speak about the substance. I think the cost is our recovery. I, I think I think that's the cost because if I am, let's say I'm 90 days sober and I am a black man and I've just kind of gone through this six week grieving process of George Floyd's murder and I go into the rooms, right? And I'm triggered. I go into the rooms and I can't have these conversations. I can't talk about what it feels like to to walk down the street at nine o'clock at night as a black man and, and, and see a police car go by and how, how do I feel about that? Or if, if I'm a black mother and I'm sober and I'm fearful of my teenage sons, something happening to them and that's triggering to me and I can't go into the rooms and have those conversations I think that what's at risk and what we lose is our recovery, not being able to talk about our black experience in a way that that just allows us to be vulnerable. It just allows us to be naked. That's the that's the thing. There's no place where we can go and really be naked as black people. We have to we do it in the in the privacy of our homes. You know, there's nowhere where we can go and just just be completely vulnerable about our experience. So I think that's what what we risk. We we we, we risk our recovery. Yeah, thank you for for mentioning uh, George George Floyd because it's still yeah, it's still very much on 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 our minds. And you know, for me, I've been really wondering what what has been the impact in our communities around addiction with all these black people who've been killed by the police and not just by the police, by white supremacists, you know, mm-hmm. Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Armand Arbery. What has, how do we, how, how do we deal with the public lynchings of black people? I think we're angry, but you know what? For I think we're just grieving. I, you know, I remember posting, um, maybe this was three years ago, and I, I don't remember. I think maybe it was Sandra Bland, 
And I was so angry and I, I made this Instagram post and I just said, if you're a white person, you need to address me first by saying, I'm sorry for your loss. Don't even say hello to me. <laughs> the first thing I want you to say to me is, is I'm sorry for your loss. I was so angry. And what I recognized is that we're, we're constantly grieving. We never have an opportunity to come up for air, um, especially with uh, social media and, you know, smartphones and the videos. It's always been happening. Exactly. It's always been happening. <laughs> so this isn't new. It's just that, you know, just the, the world that we live in now, that the information is so accessible and it's painful. It's painful. I hear you. It, it's, I mean, during this time, I've been in spaces, spaces for Black, Indigenous, people of colour, and a lot of recovery in the recovery spaces, which is, which is the main focus is around re- recovery, and all of us are speaking about what's been happening out in the world and these uprisings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's been impacting us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so grateful that I have these spaces. I it's it's why I my my most recent book, I'm still your Negro, homage to James Baldwin. I mean, who would have known how timely it was? But actually, that was written in response to the times of Eric Garner, mm. or Martin. It was like almost every day we were waking up to another black person being killed by the police, mm-hmm. and that had an impact on my recovery. I remember with Trayvon, I actually drank through um, that trial. I mean, literally spent the whole mornings, you know, that trial would start, I think at nine o'clock in the morning and, and I could not stop drinking. I just could not stop drinking. Uh, It was, I think that one really, really, you know, that broke my heart. It, it sure. broke my heart. Um, it's tough. Yeah, it is. It's tough. And I know I, I did watch the the video, the George Floyd video. I think my, my partner said, I've just watched the video and I'm in, in tears. And I just thought, I, okay, I need to, to watch this. And I went into a dark night period. I mean, fortunately... I had my practice, I had the recovery spaces, but I know I went into a dark night period for about a week. Mm. Yeah. 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 And those people who do not have those spaces, they would have gone into that dark night period, but wouldn't have been able to be with it, would have turned to the alcohol, would have turned to the heroin, would have turned to fentanyl, would have turned to the crack cocaine, would have Mm -hmm. turned to or whatever it was, or the food. Right. If they don't have a practice, if they don't have a a strong practice of recovery, um, that's exactly what happens. So what's some of the wisdom in our community? I mean, you spoke about this holistic healing and and, in your program, it's really great that you have brought some wisdom from your community into your recovery program. What is some of the wisdom that we have to help us recover from things like alcohol and drugs and food and sex and porn. 
addictions? You know, I, I think when I when I think about my my coaches, or actually I can go back further than that. When I think about Dr. Greer, and I, I I went to him thinking that he was going to teach me how to quit drinking, you know, and, and he was offended. He was so offended that I said, Doctor, I'm so excited. You wanna come here, you're gonna teach me how to how to quit drinking. And he's like, No, I'm not gonna teach you how to quit drinking. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you that life can't be meaningful. If you don't quit, he said, but people live, people live long, long, long alcoholic lives. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that was the wisdom that, that that he gave me was that I'm not quitting because I'm going to die if I don't quit, because I could live a long alcoholic life. Right. But that my life will, it won't be meaningful. It'll be unfulfilled. Um, I won't reach those potential points that I was gifted with. Um, and then, you know, I have coaches that, that coach on just how, how fearfully and wonderfully made we are and how we just through loving ourselves, really, really showing up for ourselves, um, defiantly almost, I think it's, it's just, it's just, it's just the wisdom that they, they constantly give to the people that are coming in. They're always, it's about self-love, self-preservation, um, self-appreciation. Um, that's pretty much everything that we do within our program is trying to just let meet people where they are. Um, but also letting them know that it's, that you're showing up because you love yourself. That's why, right? Not because it's the right thing to do or not because, you know, you're going to get in trouble if you don't, but you're showing up because you love yourself. And, um, you're willing to you're I don't know you're willing to do the work. Yeah, the 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 wisdom of our beauty. I mean, one of the things that I had to really come to terms with was to love myself and to love this dark black skin. Yes. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, I wouldn't have gone out in the sun because I didn't want to get darker because mm. I didn't love this beautiful black skin. You know, Nina Simone, and I saw she, there was a a clip from a, from an interview that she gave that was circulating a few years ago, ago, and she was talking about, you know, there's nothing more beautiful on the face of the earth than than black people, our blackness, (laughs) you know, and just the way she said blackness, I just, I felt proud. That needs to circulate again. I think we need to Find I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it and send it to you. Yeah, do, do. Let, let's make it go viral. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share? This has been wonderful. You know, I I, I didn't know what to expect, I, I, but I knew, I, I said, she, she's going to go deep. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to go there. And this, is, this has really been a joy to record. It really, really has. I'm... Um, yeah, I'm. I think I've left it all, left it all on the table this morning. Let's change the world together, sister. We can't do it on our own. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you, thank you for giving me some of your precious time. And I, in fact, actually, before you go, I, tell me a bit about your work because you work in. I, I, I'm inspired because you actually have a job working in the field of recovery now, don't you? 
I do. Um, I um, I I went to school to become um, a substance use disorder counselor, and that's something that I I'm not quite sure if I want to be that close to the front lines. I thought I did, but it's it's a different experience. I also went to school to become um, a recovery life coach, and so I'm kind of that's the the piece of my work that I'm really beginning to nurture and grow. Um, the substance use disorder counselor, um, I've, I've, I've completed some hours in, but it's a, it's a different, uh, space to be in when you're, you're right there on the front lines, right when people are coming in off the street and still detoxing. And, um, it, it takes, it takes quite a bit of bandwidth to be able to, to do that. Um, Whereas the recovery coaching, you meet people at a different place in their recovery. And sometimes you're, you're able to do good work in both situations, but you're able to do different work. So I think for me, where I'm most interested in, in, in working and growing is the recovery coach piece of it, where I'm working with people that um, are at a, at a different stage of change and their commitment is, is, is a little different. Definitely recovery coaching is beginning to, to boon. I, even in the celebrity world, many celebrities travel with recovery coaches. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad that you've mentioned that because there are so many different ways to do your recovery. And some mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. via a recovery coach. So how do people contact you if they wanted to work with you as a recovery coach? <laughs> If they wanted to work with me, um, I, and Served of Sober is still the best way to get me. That's where I'm most active. Uh, you can DM me there. Uh, you can send me a, um, an email there. You can find me on Facebook, direct message me. I'm, I'm always engaged with Served of Sober. I will e- eventually have a website at sherryhampton.com. It's actually in development now. Um, but just my first and last name, sherryhampton.com, and you can hop on and send me a your contact information and we can get on a conversation to see if we're a good fit. You know, I'm, I'm not for everybody, but those folks that, 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 um, can, can kind of deal with my no BS approach to recovery. I mean, recovery is serious business. And so I, I, I take a very serious approach to it. I'm, I'm passionate about my work. And so, um, I'm always looking for people that can align with, with, with what I do and, and to help them get to the next level. That's really where the joy is for me. Thank you. That's a lovely place to finish. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees 
in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Thank you.